A lot of Americans have been fed a narrative that they should want their elected officials in Washington to do more, meaning mm -hmm. to vote for things that would have the federal government doing more. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it'd be good to re-image mm -hmm. that thought. And that impulse should involve getting Washington to stay out of their line. Welcome to The Kevin Roberts Show. This week, we're talking about an idea that we're big on here at the Heritage Foundation. Economic freedom, the fundamental right of every person to control his own labor and property. Economic freedom is one of mankind's best ideas. It's responsible for more advances in living standards, health, and knowledge than anything else over the last 2,000 years. Unfortunately, economic freedom is on the decline. We'll cover why the world needs free markets today more than ever. We're joined by one of our nation's most trusted conservative leaders, my good friend, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, to talk about the current threats to economic freedom, what that means for you, and very importantly, what we can do about it. Then we'll talk to Matt Dickerson, director of our Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget here at Heritage. It'll be a serious discussion, but a very important one. But first, if this happens to be your first time watching or listening, then I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Each week, we're diving into issues that matter with voices across the conservative movement and equipping freedom lovers across the country to go on offense. For 28 years, Heritage has ranked economic freedom in countries around the world. Our annual index of economic freedom grades 184 countries on a dozen different measures. Now, I know economics doesn't sound like the most exciting topic, but here's the thing. This isn't about formulas or theories. It's a matter of improving your quality of life. That's something we should all agree on. Economic freedom means higher incomes, better health, more educational opportunities, a clean environment, technological innovation, democratic governance, and very importantly, adhering to the rule of law. So let's jump into a few highlights from the report. It's no surprise that economies in Australia and New Zealand Two countries that imposed severe COVID lockdown restrictions on their citizens dropped in their rankings. In China, a country where economic freedom is almost non-existent didn't budge, no surprise. Singapore, the country we ranked number one last year, remained in first place. However, what may or may not surprise you is that America dropped to 25th place, our lowest global ranking ever. While COVID-19 may have taken our country, and for that matter, the world by storm, it's how we handled it that seems to have affected us the most. And still, the Biden administration is barreling full steam ahead to beat Americans over the head with a socialist agenda that would add trillions to the debt, hike taxes, and centralize more federal power over the economy. Meanwhile, Americans are realizing their dollars buy less and are finding more bare shelves in the stores they shop thanks to inflation and supply chain disruptions. The reality is that it's harder today for small businesses to get off the ground or simply to keep their doors open and the lights turned on. It means families like yours and mine are going to face higher prices on things we need, like food and other necessities. It means we'll have less to pass on to our children and our children's children. That concerns me, and I'm sure it concerns you. We're going to dig into the how, the why, and the what we'll need to return to as a country where you can build a prosperous life for you and your family. Joining me to explore this issue further is Senator Mike Lee from the great state of Utah. But first, 
Don't forget to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and please give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. High ratings help us reach more people like you. Stay with us. I'll be right back with Senator Mike Lee. Big tech is out of control. If they can silence the sitting president, what can they do to you? The Heritage Foundation has been on the front lines fighting for free speech. We spotlight big tech censorship, demand reform, and help you fight for your rights. Heritage was the first conservative organization to reject big tech's money because this is too important. We won't be silenced. Senator Lee, thanks for joining. Thank you. You're a great member of the Senate, great patriot. And one of the things that you can do, uh, sometimes simultaneously it seems, is not only for those of us who do policy every day, go as deep and into the weeds as our policy analysts at Heritage can do. But what we try to do on this show is the other thing that you do well, which is to connect those really important sort of in the weeds policies with how they affect individual Americans' lives. And so the first question I have for you today is, there's a lot of conversation today in the United States and and in D.C. in particular about economic freedom. And what does that mean? I mean, Americans understand what economic freedom is, but what's the connection between the bad policies of D.C. and how the lack of economic freedom from a policy point of view affects Americans? Economic freedom refers to what happens when you're allowed to do what you do best. Mm -hmm. Work hard and provide for your family without the government telling you uh, that you can't do it that way. Mm-hmm. It, that's really what it is in a nutshell. And I think it's something the American people instinctively want. It's something that's benefited us when we've embraced it. So you've been in the Senate a while, and you've been advocating for a lot of principles regarding economic freedom, policies for economic freedom. What's your sense of the number of colleagues you have who are willing to sort of charge hills with you on behalf of economic freedom? It really depends on the issue. I don't know that I could identify a single group of people who are overtly against it. But as far as those who are willing to charge a hill in the name of economic freedom, it may vary uh, according to the precise issue happening. Because it seems like a lot of people in the Senate believe in it in general, but they've got other constituent-based interests or, or other impulses that sometimes might make them want to charge a hill in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And it seems, and we might talk about this a little bit later too, that we might be at the turning point in a good sense of a a growing number of your colleagues' understanding that there's been a dramatic lack of economic freedom when it comes to COVID-related policies. And uh, dare I say, uh, even in the previous administration and the tail end of that, it really is sort of a bipartisan problem. But in particular under President Biden, uh, draw the connections there for our audience. That is, the connections between what they're feeling on sort of a neighborhood community family level of overwrought COVID lockdowns and how the Biden administration has been driving those. Deterioration of economic freedom rarely occurs in a vacuum. In fact, I think it almost never does. Anytime you see other freedoms infringed, economic freedom is almost always uh, deteriorating at the same time because of government action. Mm -hmm. You saw people being told that they couldn't go to church, that they uh, couldn't do all sorts of things, that they had to wear a mask in public, that they had to get Mm -hmm. a medical procedure they may or may not want, and that they may or may not need based on their own medical history and... uh, natural immunity and so forth. Anytime you see those things happening, you see a corresponding diminution in economic liberty. Uh, Economic freedom was diminished as government churned out 
trillions of dollars that it didn't have, effectively printing it off, as more regulations affected businesses, told businesses even that they would have to fire anyone who didn't defer to presidential medical orthodoxy uh, as it relates to the vaccine mandates. And so uh, these are all examples of how economic freedom has been diminished with a particularly uh, fast pace over the last two years. Mm -hmm. and, and to that point, obviously, a majority of Americans, if, if we were to trust polls, would suggest that they're sort of tired of all of this. Uh, this is the week of the State of the Union. We're recording this uh, a day before, so I won't ask you to make any predictions, I don't think, about that unless you want to. The real question is, what can Americans do to fight back? They're, they're wanting to take action. They are grateful for you and so many of your colleagues who are doing that. But they ask us all the time at Heritage, Kevin, give us, give us a roadmap. Give us a blueprint for how we can take our country back. A lot of Americans um, have been fed a narrative that they should want their elected officials in Washington to do more, meaning mm -hmm. to vote for things that would have the federal government doing more. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it'd be good to re-image hmm. that thought. And that impulse should involve getting Washington to stay out of their lives. Mm -hmm. if, if that's how we re-imaged getting things done in Washington, we'd be better off as a result. And some specific issues, inflation, which of course the administration tells us is transitory, uh, supply chain disruptions they're blaming on Putin uh, with, with the Ukraine crisis. How do we fix those? Uh, obviously, a, a bit of a loaded question because at least in the first case, inflation, there are many decades of policy that contribute to that. But I think Americans are really looking for just an honest answer about diagnosing the problem of inflation in particular, but also you know, what are the first two or three steps from a policy point of view that we need to take in order to reverse that? With respect to inflation, the best thing we can do is stop spending so much. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very simple solution, it's, but it's entirely related to why we're experiencing such severe inflation right now. Mm -hmm. Seven to seven and a half percent in my state, it's more like nine to nine and a half percent. Uh, cost increases just from one year ago over products that people buy from day to day. Uh, this particular increase is directly attributable to the fact that throughout the last two years, we've been spending trillions of dollars a year more than we bring in, meaning we're just printing money, mm -hmm. which just creates inflation. We can also bring about change through regulatory reform. You know, the, the Code of Federal Regulations uh, costs the American economy an estimated $2 trillion or so a year. This is a backdoor, invisible, de facto tax increase on poor middle-class Americans. Mm -hmm. Only it's one that's not really understood by the typical American because there's no cost breakdown on any product that you buy that says, here's how much more you're paying for this product as a result of unnecessary federal regulations. So regulatory reforms like those uh, involving the RAINS Act uh, would bring about a, a, a major shift in American politics that would help control inflation. As to energy policy, the best thing we can do is to start producing again, lift the regulatory barriers to, for getting into it, and lift the current impediments the Biden administration has put on oil and gas uh, exploration, leasing, production, on federal lands where a lot of our energy is found. And I think it's, it's, thank you for that. I think it's crucial for Americans to understand that even if they aren't in an oil and gas producing state, that they benefit from those policies. We all do. They are directly related to inflation. But I'll leave that, that point aside and, and move on to something that both of us referenced, and, and that is 
the crisis in Ukraine and Putin's aggression. It's a two-part question, Senator. The first is, what's your assessment of that crisis as we sit here today? It looks as if Putin and the Russian military are ramping up the, the aggressiveness of their attack using some new military technology. And then the second part is, how would you assess President Biden's handling of that crisis? It's dire, it's severe. My thoughts and prayers go out to the uh, people of Ukraine who are living through an awful form of hell dealing with this invasion. As far as the president's handling of it, I, I would not give him high marks. And the reason for that is I think this crisis was entirely avoidable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we would have ever gotten here if we were playing a more prominent role in energy production. If Putin had the United States offsetting Europe's dependent on his oil and, and gas, Putin would never have been in a position politically, economically, or militarily to do what he's doing. And so it's beyond my ability to comprehend why he hasn't started taking steps already to fix that mm-hmm. by approving the Keystone XL pipeline, for example, by reversing his moratorium that he placed on, on oil and gas leasing on public lands when he first took office. Obviously, that's not going to you, you can't immediately undo what took more time to put in place than that, but that would be a good start. It'd be a good signal. So rather than going to OPEC countries and uh, hat in hand begging them to just produce more, I think we ought to be doing that. Yes, and, and it seems as if in a somewhat related way, another signal that we're sending in a bad way is a signal to the Chinese Communist Party that the United States is uh, to be polite and as positive as I can be about it, uh, not strong enough. And I'd just be curious, I know our audience is curious, to get your take on the connection between the Ukraine crisis in particular, the Biden administration's weakness in responding to it, and what conclusions the Chinese communist leaders are taking. Yeah, so obviously it's not sending a strong signal to them about, uh, about us and about our resolve and about our commitment to ensure our own success economically and otherwise in the world. Uh, and it's, it's also troubling from the standpoint that some of the same things that we are trying to, to do with Putin right now may have the natural effect of, of sending Putin into Xi Jinping's embracing arms mm-hmm. and, and thus empowering China even further. That, that scares me to death. And that would be historically unprecedented, at least that level of coordination between Russia and China. They flirted with that in history, but uh, I think there's a real possibility that some of our foreign policy scholars are beginning to worry about of that happening. And, and we should, we have every reason to worry about that because if, when we look at near-peer mm-hmm. military adversaries, the idea of the two of them coming together That's very dangerous for us. Yes, a lot to be praying about, isn't there? Indeed. So from foreign policy to stateside, those of us who have the privilege of working in Washington, D.C., are very interested in what's going on with President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. What's your assessment of that process of Judge Jackson herself? Yeah, first of all, as as I always do when someone receives a nomination like this, I I congratulate Judge Jackson Mm -hmm. on her nomination. I have and preparing for meetings with her and for our hearings with her 
reviewing everything I can that she's written, particularly her opinions that she's authored as a judge. And this process is going to be thorough. It's going to be a, a robust discussion about judicial philosophy and about her prior rulings. One thing that's very important that shows contrast between the two political parties. That one thing that I can assure you as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee that you're not going to see, and that's the politics of personal destruction employed as against the Supreme Court nominee. I can't think of a single Democratic nominee uh, where that's been employed by Republicans in the Senate. Tragically, I can think of a lot of examples where Republican nominees have faced that from Senate Democrats. Well, on behalf of all of us at Heritage, even though we have concerns about Judge Jackson's jurisprudence and we've stated them, we're grateful that you and your colleagues will handle yourselves that way because it's that's one path back to civil discourse. Doesn't mean we have to agree. Doesn't mean that you or your colleagues necessarily will be supportive of the nomination. You may end up being, but the point is we have to get back to right order in the United States, not just in the Senate, but in civil society. That's a little bit of a lead up to a final question for you, Senator. And it's a question that I try to work in whenever I can with guests. And it is in spite of everything that America has endured, especially over the last couple of years, COVID, the COVID lockdowns, a contested election, this point about really uncivil discourse. Why did you wake up optimistic about the future of America today? Winston Churchill has a statement that's been attributed to him. Um, the American people can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other alternative. <laughs> I don't know whether Churchill, in fact, uttered those words, but I want to believe that he did. There's something poetic uh, uh, about those words and about the idea that he uttered them. I do believe it reflects truth. And I, while he may or may not have intended those words uh, in, in, to amount to a compliment, I take them as such. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's what has differentiated us from most other nations that have ever existed on, on Earth. We, we are a people who, while human and subject to the frailty and failings of the mortal fallen condition, we want to do the right thing. Sometimes it takes us a while to get there, but we do. We've given this, this progressive experiment a nice, long, hard college try, you know, one that's been lasting for um, about 85 years. It hasn't worked. It never works. Socialism doesn't work. We're discovering that, and we're discovering it to such a degree that I think change is afoot, and it's coming soon, and not a moment too soon. Well, thanks for your leadership on that, Senator Mike Lee. Thanks for joining me today. All of you, next up for us on this show, we will return with our very own Matt Dickerson to talk about this more. Don't go away. 50 years ago, the Heritage Foundation was created to help conservatives save America from crime, inflation, communist aggression, and cultural decay brought on by left-wing coastal elites. The bad news is leftists are screwing it up all over again. This means we're going to have to save America once more. And the good news is we can. Today, Heritage is the tip of the spear for America's counteroffensive against the woke socialist left dominating Washington and poisoning our country. We're laying out the facts, leading the debates, and setting the agenda to protect our elections and our border, to rein in big tech and rescue kids from woke schools, and to help Americans rebuild a strong economy and even stronger families. 
After what we've seen the woke left become in recent years, we know the days of reacting to them are over. From Congress to school boards to kitchen tables, conservatives need to go on offense every day, stay on offense, and win the fight for the next generation. Welcome back, everyone, to our final stretch of the show. This week, we're going to dig deeper into where we're currently at as a nation when it comes to the budget process. Joining us is my friend and colleague, Matt Dickerson, the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget and an expert on all things budget, appropriations, entitlement reform, and tax policy. I know that sounds riveting. Let me just assure you it's crucial, and I really do mean that, no sarcasm, because what Matt does, what we do at Heritage, affects everything in our lives. Matt, thanks for taking time. Of course. Thanks for having me on. So we're in the middle of this budget process. Absolutely. Sort of to the point that I just made for our audience, it is not necessarily the most appealing sounding kind of policy, but it is absolutely true that right now, perhaps other than what's going on in foreign policy, it's probably the single most pressing issue. Absolutely. It's very crucial because it is the thing that, it's the way that government does all the other things, right? So when you're a small business owner and you're concerned about the onerous regulations that are being placed on you. It's the federal budget process that allows those bureaucrats the power to be able to, to effectuate those, those regulations. And one of the things you're, you're great at, one of the many things I should say, is connecting that kind of high-level policy to how it affects Americans' lives. And so I just, we'll get to that in a minute, but I want to step into the weeds with you, if you don't mind, for the sake of our audience who are trying to keep track of this amid the State of the Union, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. in a minute, coming up in several hours. We're recording this before then. Uh, what's going on in Ukraine, obviously, great concern. But what's, what cannot be lost in the middle of that shuffle is that we're in this budget process. There's a timeline, and obviously that affects Americans' lives. But tell us before we get to that connection, where are we in the budget process? Sure thing. So the uh, federal fiscal year is supposed to start on October 1st. They never meet that deadline, right? If you're a small business owner and you didn't meet your budgetary deadlines, you'd go out of business. Well, the federal government for decades has not followed its statutory budget process. Uh, so what we've been ex- doing is we've extended President Trump's last spending bill, his last appropriations bills, all from the Trump administration all through the, uh, the through current days. So we're several months behind on where they're supposed to be in the normal budget process. In fact, they haven't even passed a real budget resolution, which is supposed to be step one. So uh, for the audience who might think that Washington is broken, you've done nothing to disabuse them of that notion. Absolutely. And so right now, the congressional leaders, they're trying to catch up to what they were supposed to have done last year, but they're doing it in all the wrong way. They want to increase spending massively. They want to give more power to the federal regulatory agencies. They want to give more power to the bureaucrats to do things like enforce vaccine mandates. But the good news is, you and all of us at Heritage don't just call a spade a spade that is diagnosed problems with, with realism. We also point to some solutions and you've got a plan that over some period of time will get us out of this mess. Explain that for us. Absolutely. So last week, my colleagues and I at the Heritage Foundation, we released our federal uh, budget blueprint. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, an entire federal budget proposal that would take a look at the entire federal government, all the trillions of dollars that we're spending and say, mm-hmm evaluate each program and say, does this program make sense? Are there better ways to do it? Or can we just get rid of it all? So we take a look at Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and see how we can perform those programs so that they're a better deal for the taxpayers and especially for the people that they're supposed to be benefiting so that they can be around long term. And then we get rid of all sorts of different programs that 
just take people's money and do all sorts of bad things with it uh, that, that are harmful for our, our economy and our culture. That's right. I mean, it, make, it makes it very difficult for Americans, regardless of where they are geographically, what their politics are, to just go about their lives. And I think that's the recognition that a growing number of Americans have, and that is that the government actually has gotten so large and so expensive that this isn't some abstract threat. This is something that affects us every single day, right? Exactly. Uh, so if you're concerned about uh, protecting life, right, mm -hmm. uh, the federal government gives hundreds of millions of dollars a year to Planned Parenthood. I, I think that's just completely mm -hmm. unconscionable. And these are the types of things that are, are, are seated all throughout the federal budget. And, and another example, one that you and I have talked about quite a bit the last couple of weeks, is that if Americans and folks in the audience are concerned about their local school districts, supporting critical race theory, other elements of indoctrination, and, and some of, a, of those folks write to us and say, our school board is sponsoring these, these professional development days for teachers. Where does that money come from? It comes from the federal budget. Exactly. And so we at the Heritage Foundation have a plan to phase out the federal department of education so that restores local control for our yeah. local community so we can have better results. We, we look forward to that day. So we are sitting here hours before President Biden delivers his first State of the Union address. I won't ask you to make too many predictions, but I will ask you to comment on one. You've, you've got, for our audience who may not know, you've got a lot of experience with the budget process. I'm going to posit that President Biden is going to blame inflation and increased spending on COVID. With your very fair, objective hat on, respond to that claim. Yeah, I, I think the inflation has been caused by the massive spending spree and the massive regulatory spree that we've seen over the last several years. We've seen tons of money, trillions and, and trillions of dollars, more than $6 trillion spent in addition to the normal $5 trillion federal budget uh, that, that's spent on an annual basis. That's been pumped into the economy. At the same time, the government has been imposing lockdowns and restricting uh, people's ability to go to work. So what does that cause? That's too much money causing too few goods and services in the economy. And, and what is that? That's the recipe for inflation. And that's what we've seen, 7% inflation year over year. And, and very much related to that, the last question is that we're $30 trillion in debt. I hear from Americans, I hear from some folks left of center who say, don't even bother. Well, obviously we're gonna bother with it because of all of yeah. the reasons you've, you've laid out. How do we dig ourselves out of this hole? It's not sustainable. First, mm -hmm. you have to stop, do no more harm. And so from there, no more massive omnibus spending bills, no more massive spending sprees, no more bailouts, stop. And then you have to go and turn to the solutions. We at the Heritage Foundation have our budget blueprint that takes a look at all the major spending programs, provides the investments where it's needed on things like national security, but then turns the tide on, on federal spending. And that's the way you have to do it. Well, Matt Dickerson, thanks for being here today. Most of all, thanks for all the great work you do, not just for us at Heritage, but for people tuning in and, and Americans all over. Great. Thanks so much, Kevin, and, and thank you, too. You bet. That's a wrap for this week's show. I want to, again, thank my guests, Senator Mike Lee and Matt Dickerson. Don't forget to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. And tell a friend. Our movement is for everybody and all are welcome. Take care, and we'll see you next week.